Checkmate. We've done this almost 100 times, and I still get nervous. I'm like, God, I wonder if I have any, anything interesting to say today. <laughs> Maybe we should start with a prayer or a hymn. Oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. Have I told you about my grandfather? He likes to spontaneously break out into hymn at family gatherings. Him who? Oh. Him he. Yahweh. That's oh. what my father-in-law did at our wedding. Really? It was spontaneous, or was it? It was spontaneous. Did the power of the Lord shine upon him? That was... I want to hear that story. No, I think we're okay. I thought it was sweet. Just surprising. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this will be a fun podcast. <laughs> True. There's a lot to unpack. Millennial resentment towards the church. No, yeah. I don't think we'll get... I'll hold my punches. Too crazy. Because there's interesting things on both sides. Mm-hmm. A lot of fine people on both sides. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But... Gabe, we have someone with us today. Are we good on uh, levels and stuff? Yeah. Can I try something real quick on my mic? Sure. Maybe it's just Premiere. Gabe. <laughs> just good posture. Everybody posture check. Gabe. <laughs> Sorry. All right. When I say Gabe, I'm talking to you, oh, by the way. Hey, what's going on, Steve? How are you? Hey, Gabe, we have someone here with us today that we don't normally have with us. We do. It's been a little while. We have Allie back on the show. Hello. Good evening. Hello. Which means we're also on a different set. We're not on our usual production stage. That's true. Our back lot. And gosh, today is going to be a very special episode, I think, for many reasons. Give me one reason, Steve. Because the content that we're discussing is multi-layered and has a lot of personal connection with all of us. And then also, it was just a very good, well-made show, which is sort of a quasi-sequel to a podcast we did a while ago. And it came out last year at this time. Gabe, what are we talking about today? Today, Stephen, we're reviewing and chatting about... Drumroll. The Midnight Mass. Or just Midnight Mass. Just Midnight Mass. Just Midnight Mass. <laughs> Mike Flanagan's new Netflix show, coming hot off the heels of The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. The Haunting series. The anthology series that this is not a part of. Nope. In name, but kind of in spirit. There are a couple reasons why it's not just the third season of that show. That's true. One of which being, as you pointed out to me, it's not an adaptation of a previous work like the other two, but it's an original story. That is fact one. What's fact two? The fact two is that it's not a haunting. (laughs) I mean, not in the literal sense. That's fact two. What's fact three? Uh, I don't know. What's fact three? Fact three is that it's not a haunting. (laughs) (laughs) I knew there was no fact three. No, there's a fact three. It's that this was Mike Flanagan's. It's one of his like babies that he wrote. Yeah. A while ago or came up with the concept a while ago. Mm. like years ago and it had been on the back burner for a long time as something that he really wanted to do because he really felt strongly about the message and the story that it was telling and because it was so near and dear to him it was something that wasn't connected to the haunting series which i'm assuming will continue yeah even though there hasn't been anything like a season three announced yet anyway i'd be very surprised if there wasn't because that's been a good ip for netflix i agree can you give just give a little little bit more of a background on who Mike Flanagan is and his style of filmmaking and I think you're calling him like the modern master of conventional conventional horror. horror. Uh, I use that term occasionally and loosely. I've used it before to describe James Wan. Both of them have a very particular style but it's very accessible. It's not really like what I would call like auteur or art house horror. Yeah. You know stuff like Hereditary or uh, The Witch. 
But he is bad. I mean, like when I watch other horror movies, Mike Flanagan stuff always resonates with me on a much deeper and larger, even just like from filmmaking technical standpoint, I resonate with it as very well done Mm -hmm. and it doesn't come off as hokey for whatever reason. Yeah. And I I appreciate that about him a lot. It's more than just competently made. It's exceptionally made. Yeah. But I would call it more conventional than maybe something that A24 would put out, you know, just as a point of comparison. Totally. Yeah, brief history of his career. He had a few credits to his name before. He did a small film in 2011 called Absentia, which sort of got the ball rolling for him. And that led into Oculus and a series of smaller horror films that he got to sort of cut his teeth on and explore his own style of filmmaking. And they were all basically reviewed pretty well from Oculus to Hush, which was a fun one with Kate Siegel, who is, uh, you know who she is. Uh Uh-huh. Kate Siegel, do you know who she is, Allie? She was the actress in Midnight Mass who played Aaron, who was the love interest for Riley. That's actually Mike Flanagan's wife. It is? Yeah. Oh, crazy. They're married. She's, yeah, I think they met on the set of Hush, maybe, and fell in love, and now she's kind of his muse, so. She's great. And then he made a few other features. He did Ouija, Origin of Evil, which was, I think, a sequel to the other Ouija movie, but was Uh, good, much better than the other Ouija movie. He did the Stephen King adaptation, Gerald's Game, for Netflix. People liked that one. And then he did Doctor Sleep, which was, I guess you'd call it a sequel to The Shining, Kubrick's Shining. I forgot that he directed that. Which I thoroughly enjoyed, despite despite reservations about the third act and, you know, returning to The Overlook, uh, which was fine, ultimately. But overall, it was a great movie i think yeah and in in that process in the last few years he's really made his mark with the haunting of hill house and bly manor last year totally which is uh very good very scary show with a lot of heart both of the seasons hill house was bly manor was less scary midnight mass is even less scary than that that's true probably by more than half that's a great i can't speak to that because i didn't see the other show but there are some pretty haunting and chilling images (laughs) i will say were you at any point, Allie, during Midnight Mass, uh, viscerally afraid, like terrified? I wasn't afraid. It was more so like there were some chilling scenes and images that stuck with me as I tried to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I'm sure Steven kind of pulled your leg to get you to watch this show. Well, <laughs> you really liked it even after watching the first episode. I did like it. You came to me and were like, I really liked that show we were watching last no, night. No, I do. I do like it. I didn't know it was going to take that turn that turn that it did the direction and while I appreciated the turn that it did take which I'm sure we'll talk about more soon but when that first happened I kind of was thinking oh it didn't need to go that direction because there's Mm -hmm. so much there already to explore however after kind of finishing the show as a whole and even now as I'm kind of processing things I have a lot of thoughts about why they used the figure. That they did? Yeah. And the way the show went. And yeah. we'll definitely Can we get into that. Briefly talk about the cast? Yeah, of course. A couple of the specs, maybe. So Mike Flanagan loves to, as many directors do, uh, keep working with people that he's worked with in the past. People that he's had a good experience with creating his art. Mm-hmm. In Midnight Mass... Uh, this is one of the reasons why it feels like part of the haunting is because uh, half the cast is there, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> including his wife, Kate Segal, as a very important character, Aaron Green. Mm-hmm. All this is set on an unspecified island, presumably maybe off of New England somewhere. Anyway, the cast is led by Zach Guilford, who I hadn't seen before as Riley Flynn. He's the main guy. He's the son of Flynn. 
There you go. Son of Flynn. <laughs> One day I got in. He's Henry Thomas's son. Henry Thomas was uh, the kid in E.T., and he's all grown up, and he's a recurring cast member in these anthology Mike Flanagan works. Mm-hmm. In this one, he's really good, and he plays Zach Guilford's father, Ed Flynn. Who was married to Annie Flynn, played by Kristen Lemon. She's great. Mm-hmm. She was in the Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> You're laughing. A classic. <laughs> Stop. I love, I love Riddick. Um, it's like, she was in something. <laughs> there was also Annabeth Gish. Who yeah, is, of X-Files fame. Yeah. She was in seasons eight and nine of X-Files. She basically played Jillian Anderson's replacement. Uh, in there, Samantha Sloan, who was... Yes. Bev Keen was her character's Bev name. Bev Keen was, was... And I have great. so much... Yeah, she So was, much to talk about. She was her. really the linchpin of this show. Yeah. I think. And then Rahul Kohli yes. was a returning cast member from the Bly season. He's uh, great. And he, was, he played the sheriff of the town, a Muslim sheriff. He killed it. I loved him in this season. And then we're, we could not forget our dear priest. Amish Linklater. I don't know how hard the H is, but Amish? Hamish? Hamish? It might be Hamish. Oh, it's probably Hamish. Hamish Linklater. I first saw him as the assistant to the dude from Nip Tuck in the first Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> Leonard is his character's name in Fantastic Four. Yeah, I first saw him there, but he was notable because he was so, in that role, he has like three lines in the whole movie. I'm like, who is this guy? He has a unique look and tone. And yeah, his voice too. His voice, yeah. It's very memorable. But he was great. I think he's going to blow up after this role, to be honest. He's been quietly doing stuff for many years. He was actually just in The Stand, which was the Stephen King adaptation Mm, mm, to come mm. out of was it hulu paramount plus i guess there's too many streaming sites to keep track of these days he played sort of the epicenter of the plot and the events that were happening on what we come to know as this east coast island off of was it alley was it rhode island or maine uh it was called crockett and it's a mythical island but i think it was supposed to be off of maine Maine. i knew it wasn't real It's not real, yeah. <laughs> and they called it the Crockpot because it was a very small town of just people that kind of ended up there, you know. A lot of them didn't want to be there. It's kind of a dead town. Yeah, dead town. Anyway, let's talk about the story a little bit, and then we can talk about what we felt and our feelings. I guess we'll say full spoilers from here on out. Full spoilers. <laughs> Y'all are going to get spoiled, and it's, it's crazy. Allie, what was the turn? in this show but before we just briefly go over what happened what is what is this show if it not a ghost what is so i actually have (laughs) opinions on that because so it takes a turn where things seem like it's becoming a vampire show vampires however that word is never blatantly used um and even the townspeople don't their eyes aren't open to the correlations to a vampire, such as being burned in the sun and drinking of blood, like the obvious factors. So I think there's a point to that, which I can talk about later, but it does take a pretty violent turn. (laughs) Um, However, I think that there's a lot of symbolism with using that tool. They refer to the vampire um, whether it's a vampire or not. I'm going to say I don't necessarily view it as a vampire, but Mm. they call it the angel of the lord 
but so knowing know that, that. Stephen, would you give us a little bit of a synopsis of the show? Yeah. So this show takes place on a fictional island off of Maine called Crockett. Maybe a hundred people live there. Yeah, and there is a man named Riley Flynn who gets in a drunk driving accident and kills his girlfriend or you know someone that he was partying with or something and he's put in jail for four years and comes back to this island where he is from and he starts kind of getting reacquainted with the people of the island and that's sort of our gateway and insight into the island and what's happening there's one church in the town it's a catholic church and there is a priest by the name of monsignor pruitt and he is absent when he returns and then all of a sudden this young a new priest by the name of father paul shows up and says monsignor pruitt's sick on the mainland he starts preaching sort of a new gospel and all of these things start happening as the people of the island start to hop on this bandwagon of kind of gathering for mass and it's the week of easter that all of these events take place resurrection sunday that's where it culminates but a miracle happens uh, this girl that was paralyzed i'm gonna skip over a lot of the details here just fyi so that i can just kind of get the broad strokes this girl that was paralyzed starts to walk and the miracle spreads throughout the population of the island and people start to gather and start to follow this new young priest father paul and all these other kinds of miracles start to happen like minor miracles i would say people start to kind of (laughs) de-age And become younger. Yeah. Like the opposite of a Scorsese movie. Yeah, sure. And start to have other health issues fixed. One woman that was pregnant, she becomes unpregnant, thought to have a miscarriage, but it's really unclear what happened up until sort of the last episode. Anyway, the big thing happens toward the last couple episodes. It's revealed to the town that there's this, what that new young father, Paul, is calling the angel of the Lord, who looks like a humanoid sort of demon with wings. He brings him into the church when everybody gathers at midnight. Anyway, he reveals that This angel of the Lord is the cause of all these miracles happening, and it freaks everybody out because, you know, what the f***? And and then also he reveals that he's been lying to the town and that he is actually Monsignor Pruitt. (gasps) Yeah, and he basically was de-aged as well, and he came back to (laughs) spread the, the good news with the town and bring the miraculous happenings that the angel of the Lord bestowed upon him. (laughs) Bring forth the kingdom of heaven onto earth. Mm -hmm. There's a lot I'm skipping over, but that's basically what happens. Then episode six takes place. All this crazy shit goes down. Everybody starts eating each other. And then they all start being resurrected in their new bodies to speak biblically. Because this is what Again, Monsignor Pruitt, Father Paul, believes that there's this new resurrection body. This is very biblical. This is kind of like the heart of the show is that everything that happens in the show that can correlate sort of with a vampire is spun to be taken from a biblical and Christian theological understanding. And that is sort of why this show is what it is and why it's so interesting. And then the last episode, essentially everybody in the town dies 
literally everyone except for two kids one of them being the no longer paralyzed girl and her sort of like quasi boyfriend escape in a canoe and everyone else dies and is either resurrected as a vampire or actually just dies for good because uh one key ingredient was that (laughs) monsignor pruitt was in the communion cups feeding he was spiking the wine with vampire blood with the vampire angel of the lord blood and if you had that blood in you then you'd be resurrected as a vampire when you died and that's sort of the key thing anyway everyone dies and then decides toward the end that this isn't a good thing this isn't a moral thing even monsignor pruitt realizes he was wrong and sort of apologizes to the town and tries to make recompense while this is happening again sort of misquoting the book of revelation one of monsignor pruitt's followers who's this psycho lady named bev keen who we'll talk about in a second uh, decides to torch the whole island and all the buildings so by the time the sun comes up (laughs) there's no buildings for all these new vampires to hide in and they all die when the sun comes up, except for the two kids floating in the canoe out in the ocean. Well, she's trying to preserve the vampires, actually. She does, she keeps a building to herself, but... An ark. Yeah, but that gets torched, too. Yes, by but not humans. by her. By the two humans that are left. <laughs> anyway, so that's the show. And again, it has massive Christian biblical undertones and... Overtones, um, even. Overtones. And we can talk about those uh, now. So that's it. Yeah. Does. So Take I just away. wanted to say that maybe taking the show at a simplistic viewing, it could be easy to view it as, oh, this is the hypocrisy of Christianity, or this is, you know, the frustration of the modern age with Christianity. But I actually think that's, in my opinion, kind of a poor reading, because I think it's more about the complexities of faith and how different people view it and how that role of faith plays out in their life. And I think the show is hugely about blind faith. Mm, Interesting. So I just wanted to say that to start out, because... I I think it's really complex and has a lot of different gray areas to discuss. Can you define what you mean when you say blind faith? I was basically thinking about the role of blind faith in terms of the vampire, whether he's a vampire or not, and how... The angel. Father Pruitt views it as an angel. And we know for a fact, okay, this is not like a good angel of the Lord. It's either a vampire or a fallen angel or whatever you want to call it. It's clearly not good. We know that. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the role of vampire being kind of the reversal of a Christ role. So although they're both reborn after death, Jesus shed his blood for the sake of God's love for the world, whereas the vampire takes and feeds on the blood. So it's a complete opposite example, kind of an allegory for that. And then similar to, I was thinking also, I don't know if anyone's familiar, there's a quote in Revelation and talks about, it's more of a allegorical language being used here, but they talk about the whore of Babylon drinking the blood of the saints. So it's often whenever drinking of blood is used, it's the opposite of the spirit of Christ, which I think is important to distinguish in terms of biblical language, because I think a lot of people can kind of take the show in a way where, oh, these people are just crazy and they're following these scriptures and they're led with this, I don't know, false mindset based on scriptures, but it's actually... 
False teaching, exactly. But um, I think that's kind of what the show is exploring. It's exploring the difference between pure faith, or maybe that's not the best terminology, but a, a kind of faith like Aaron, that Aaron has. I think Aaron's a great example of this kind of pure faith as she's talking about life after death to Riley mm. and being reunited to her unborn child. Um, which she miscarried. She, in the end, also sacrifices herself for the good of others and also kind of with like this hopeful faith of what it means to be reunited with her child in the end and kind of this peace and harmony that she hopes for in the afterlife. So I just think that there's a lot to be said about why the vampire image is chosen. And then once again, Lisa, who Steven said, um, is the girl who is healed she couldn't feel her legs before and then she gets her feeling back and is able to walk however in the end when the vampire dies um she loses her feeling again which also i think points to the fact that the miracles that were happening were false miracles because they weren't long lasting so they weren't necessarily truth mm. yeah it's a really good point really quick gabe will tell you a fact about the show that Mike Flanagan spoke of based off of what you just said. So a lot of people took the ending of the show because Lisa says she can't feel her legs, Mm -hmm. right? You would think through vampiric lore, (laughs) as you would have it, that that would mean the vampire would be dead. Mm -hmm. When in fact that is, according to Flanagan, not the case in this Mm -hmm. story. That simply meant that her dosage of the blood had worn off. Even though it, it was heavily implied that the vampire mm-hmm. just couldn't fly out of the out of the dusk, mm-hmm. the dawn. Yeah. Well, well, nonetheless, it still applies, right? Yes. Because it's all about this feeding of this. It's the theme of addiction. They need more in order to maintain this specific state, whether it's youth or healing or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's long lasting. It's and it, obviously the theme of addiction runs throughout the show, like with Riley, but that's a whole nother conversation. But I think whether the vampire dies or not, I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah. That last line of the show is really interesting because a lot of people could have interpreted it like, oh, they're okay now, you know. The two characters that are left. Yeah. But I I thought it like, no, these kids literally have no money. No one's going to believe them when they get to the mainland what just happened on their island. They're stuck in a boat. One of them is paralyzed. Well, measured up against the alternative, which is... Dead. A horrible death. Either way, you spin it. Yeah. But it seems like it's still a kind sure. of hopeful send-off. Sure. Going back to what we were mentioning before about blind faith, because it is easy to take this show on an initial watch as just a, a straightforward criticism of faith in general, of religion. Right. Like a treatise on the draconic nature of organized religion, corporate mm. religion. But it is it is really more complicated than that. The different ways people approach faith, there's even in just the main cast alone, there's several... approaches to handling faith from pure blind faith to uh, all the way to atheism as Riley represents the main guy because of the things that he had gone through. He's just completely rejected God. And I think that's kind of the point of the show is like, it's not just trying to point out Christianity. It's trying to point out faith on a larger spectrum, you know, but it's like the whole wolves in sheep's clothing, you know, and that whole type of idea you have, 
Father Pruitt, who repents at the end, and you have that image of the community center where Bev, you know, Bev obviously is the binary kind of in a lot of ways to certain characters, but she basically rejects a certain person within the community. Um, well, every a lot of people she rejects, but there's a certain person <laughs> in the community she blatantly rejects as like, nope, you don't get to have shelter here. Like, mm-hmm. you sinned, so yeah, you hadn't lived a certain lifestyle, so you get to die. Whereas Father Pruitt, after he kind of repents and realizes, wow, this is not right. What I've been doing is not right. He says, everyone is welcome in the church. He opens the doors. Yeah. And there's this clear binary opposition. To me, Father Pruitt kind of turns towards a path of love and self-sacrifice in the end. Yeah, and just wide acceptance. Let's talk about Bev Keen a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Because you guys were Keen. just talking about her. So, Not in recent memory has there been such an iconic villainous character that people love to hate. Maybe since like Joffrey in Game of Thrones. <laughs> and there there are so few characters For real though, honestly. There are a few characters in television history in the twenty first century, I think. Characters of that caliber. Yeah. Where they are so brilliantly portrayed by the actor totally. to be such pieces of garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, over and over again, as Ali and I were watching this show, we just kept saying, This actress is amazing. Samantha Sloyan. Yeah. Like she is amazing at what she is doing in mm-hmm. in this show. Mm-hmm. There's kind of like a almost a theatrical element to her performance mm-hmm. where it just feels like you're there and, and just every facial expression and the way she carries herself in this odd way of how she kind of seems old and young at the same time. Like she wears this like, you know, single braid and has this kind of conservative attire and she's got, you know, she's kind of got freckles on her face. So she's got this little girl vibe, but also this old woman vibe. Mm -hmm. She's just a very unique character and she certainly symbolizes the hypocrisy of faith. She is the true villain of this show. Yeah. Even more so than the vampire lord or whatever it was. (laughs) Yeah, to speak a little bit about the hypocrisy of faith, that's really interesting because Bev Keen, one of the interesting things about hypocrisy in Christianity is people look at Christianity often and say, your actions don't measure up with your words, you know, your professed beliefs. And that's sort of the trademark of why people think that Christians are lacking or just that Christianity is misrepresented in a way. The thing about Bev Keen, and that's so interesting, and as it is with most Christians that honestly misrepresent the idea of Christ is that they believe what they're doing is right. And they believe what they're what they're saying is right. Yeah. And that there is a black and a white and if you're not with us, you're against us kind of a thing. From my point of view, the Jedi are evil. <laughs> But with Bev Keen, it's just so interesting to watch because she was an extremely well-written character in an extremely well-written and intelligent script about Christianity and the hypocrisy behind it. And that toward the end, you have the character who is actually good talking to Bev Keen, who is technically bad. Yeah. And saying, 
you're not a good person and you should really question your belief system because you're not representing it well. And it's so interesting to see the contrast of this hypocritical character who everyone, the whole audience that's viewing the show could say that oh, this person's hypocritical versus a person who is actually good. It's just like a very good example of sort of that real life metaphor that we see all the time. And it was just extremely well written because of that, I think. Well, I agree with you. The contrast in that scene is really, really good. But I just wanted to clarify that she actually, the mom, Riley's mom, actually doesn't use any language of specific judgment except for the fact that she says you're not a good person. What I got from it was the emphasis of that conversation was Riley's mom saying over and over again, you are just as loved as I am. Riley is just as loved as you. And Bev's difficulty with accepting the fact that God loves everyone. And even Riley, who, you know, in the beginning of the show, he is drunk driving and ends up killing a young woman. So for me, that conversation was really important because it's Riley's mom, the prayerful mother of two, who is just serving her family and kind of living a very simple life that is kind of representing what love looks like because that's exactly what she exemplifies in the conversation whereas Bev like she can't accept that in the end she's literally like trying to bury herself in the dirt to avoid death cowardly whereas the other characters are actually singing a hymn at the end knowing they're all gonna burn alive so there's this kind of like hopeful peace as they all sing this hymn right before they know they're gonna die contrasted with Bev's character trying to bury herself in the ground, which yeah. is crazy. To take that even a step further, because I didn't even really focus on the hypocrisy the first time because of just how overtly uh, evil she was. Beth's faith is a vindictive one. It is the hellfire and brimstone faith of, you know, of your her, her, her faith, her faith is entirely, she seems to hijack religion and mm. belief and, and uses it as her own weapon in a way to serve only herself throughout the course of the show she is constantly only ever an agent of her own intention and her own desire even when she was working to further the goals of the priest or other other people bev keen believes she is the ultimate authority in her worldview mm -hmm. um and i think i think that is it's really interesting because you have a lot of vindictive people that predatory people that use so she's kind of like the character aspect of religion that you might take like i mentioned before before you get into the complexities of the show there is bev keen who is like the main critique she is the the poster child for mm -hmm. everything that is wrong in organized religion corporate christianity yada yada mm -hmm. it is all for herself <laughs> And even by the end, her only desire is to be the person in power. She wants to be that figure who can make the call, the person that can say, you are not worthy to be inside my ark. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely adored not only that performance, but the closure that she had, if you can call it that, because everyone was like, everybody watching the show wants that character to be absolutely torn apart. But I thought, what an incredible finish for Bev Keen to be at her end alone mm -hmm. first of all mm -hmm. surrounded by no one but left to her own devices as she burns in the sunlight but also to try to dig her way into the earth to hide herself from this pure revelation of her own sins if nothing else her own faults so i was extremely satisfied <laughs> with, with not only that character but the way 
her story ended. Mm-hmm. I um, agree. Yeah. yeah. That's great. interesting because, like, even just what you said, the analogy of her burning in the sunlight alone, like the sunlight being, you know, the light that is shined upon the sins of a person. And when the light is shown, there's a verse in the Bible that says something to the effect of people hide when the light is shown. Mm-hmm. They stay in the dark because they're afraid of the light. They didn't even use that verse in this show, but it would have been so perfect. But well, it's because most of the scripture in this show came from Bev. And Revelation. She would, <laughs> yeah, she, she would use scripture to her own ends. Mm-hmm. And so that's not a verse she was probably well, intimately yeah, familiar with. That's true, but so did Monsignor Pruitt, Father Paul. He was always sort of trying to do the right thing. But throughout the show, he was also warping scripture. He was justifying essentially this vampire Mm -hmm. by calling it an angel and saying that when anyone encountered an angel, they were sore afraid. They were sore afraid. In the Bible, that's what it says, that they were afraid. And so when people are afraid of the angel that they see in front of them, which is actually a vampire, that they're afraid of what they're seeing. And that kind of justification is interesting because it's got good intention and is very contrasting to Bev Keen's character, but in the end is just as much of a detriment. And then the delineation between Monsignor Pruitt and Bev Keen at the end, where he essentially separates himself from her and says, anyone's welcome in my space, in my church, versus Bev Keen basically denying anyone that hasn't quote-unquote followed the faith up to that point. That's kind of sort of the heart of the show, you know, in that Repentance, way. right? Yeah, yeah. And acceptance. Because it's more about everyone gets to join in. Mm-hmm. Everyone is loved versus some of us are accepted mm-hmm. and then judged mm-hmm. through Bev Keen. Yeah. What did you guys think of the sheriff's character and the role that he played in the show? Mm. Yeah, I loved him. He was an Islamic character who was very devout to his faith and came from he kind of talked about um the racial conflict that he experienced in new york post 9 11 and you know just very real rawness of what he experienced and then he moved to this island kind of to escape that yeah that hardship yeah and his wife also died of a horrible cancer Mm -hmm. cancer i think it's implied so he and his young son move to the island but I don't know. I thought his character was interesting. I mostly love everything Rahu Kohli brought to that character because <laughs> what? First of all, what an incredible representation of Muslim faith by itself, mm-hmm. and then brought to life by this person who is very kind and understanding. And I mean, his whole character exists to counter the biases and the prejudices of the other yeah. characters and the audience for the that preconceptions matter. of a muslim person mm-hmm. yeah exactly and his relationship with his son was incredible everything he said about like there's a great line where he's confronting his son because his son wants to go to the catholic church mm-hmm. to mass and he's like son you don't have to search for god like we already have him and it was a really interesting a contrast the different styles of faith i wasn't crazy about the one monologue he had towards the end of the show before mass, which With was Sarah. Yeah. About nine eleven. Sarah confronts him about the vampiric blood and he uses this scene in the writing. It, it's an opportunity for him to jump off into his backstory. Right. About the racism and post nine eleven fear of that moment felt kinda out of place because it, it was like, let's pause this narrative of the rest of the show. For, and give him a backstory. Yeah, and flesh out this character, which is already a great character. And it almost, for me, a little bit diminished the goodwill uh, or like the momentum that this character had going into the finale. But for the rest of 
that character's story, I thought it was incredible. Maybe my favorite part of the show, because I, for one, have never seen this very grounded representation. It's kind of like when you get minorities or female leads a lot of the time, it focuses on that singular aspect of them, that they are here because they are this person. But Sheriff, the sheriff in the show, (laughs) I can't remember his name. Hassan. Hassan, yeah. He represented just another person with another faith. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but it was a faith that was not a faith that was looking to dominate its its environment. He was there solely for his own family. It was not like he was evangelizing to other people. And he made it explicitly clear that that was not his intention. He was just here to live his life, to make a living, to have a future for him and his son, and to escape from those things in other places. Mm -hmm. I didn't dislike that monologue at all because the whole show is considered quote-unquote talky yeah and i love talkies a lot of people explaining things and it's very philosophical Mm -hmm. and that whole what i would call like the last hurrah of exposition before we get into the finale of the show was fine because it was just more talking about getting a character's backstory etc it's almost like yes it could have been written in earlier or like aspects of it could have been written earlier but i think it's fine that it happened as it did personally i think in like you said in a show that is very talky that is comprised mostly of uh, philosophical monologues or dialogues between characters about the themes of the show it felt one of like it was one of the more out of place uh, moments i mean contrasting with like what i would say is one of my favorite parts of the show, which happens at least once an episode for the first few episodes, two, three, four, and five, which is Riley talking with the priest uh, inside the rec center, having his little impromptu AA meetings, basically debating and philosophizing mm. uh, faith and religion and its validity and its place in yeah. our lives. That really felt like the heart of the show and everything else sort of revolved around it. Maybe mm-hmm. you guys have something to say about those scenes i don't actually no i want to i agree with you i want to hear more what you think about them gabe but my initial thought was they're like aa meetings right so there's like this theme of addiction and and, and it is interesting as riley's going through sobriety and this commitment to have these conversations um post getting out of jail is at the same time that Father Pruitt is exhibiting his new addiction for blood and yeah. like this growing thirst. And yet they're having these yeah, really interesting conversations. I feel like Riley really wrestles with the obvious existential questions of like, why does suffering happen? And why do these different things occur? And actually the sheriff has a conversation with his son that's similar when he talks about the gruesome way that his wife died of cancer and yet Lisa was healed of her legs Mm -hmm. and that kind of question of why are some people healed and other people aren't the age-old question the age how can a just God allow suffering right exactly but what did you get from those conversations well I think that's a great starting point because that was honestly the heart of Riley's struggle with his faith that he grew up in. Now he considers himself an atheist. This character that has returned to his home after his tragedy, his dilemma that he spent years in prison sorting through is that how can a just God allow suffering of this magnitude, no less? Death and everything else that leads to it. And there is so much to digest there. I don't really know how to dig into it other than to say the priest's response to me was... Mm -hmm 
the most profound part of the conversation because his intentions to me over the course of the show are so pure. I agree. And even though it leads to this inevitable destruction of the island and of these terrible things that happen, his intention was always to bring literally heaven to earth. And he recognized the vampire as an angel. He didn't, mm-hmm. there's no conception of a, a vampire or demon in this world to him. And and he says to Riley, as Riley's grappling with his faith and they're not arguing, but going back and forth over what faith is and what it means that he doesn't have all the answers and that he's just here to do the best he can with what he has. So that really was fascinating to me because there's like a, a softness and a kindness to it. And I, I didn't know what to expect going into this show and what to expect from that character. But having a character like Bev Keen contrasted with a character like, I guess, Monsignor Pruitt would be his proper title, Priest uh, Paul, whatever his name is. Mm-hmm. It was such an incredible contrast. This person who is just trying to do right by the people that he loves and the people that he knows. But Riley just can't, he can't accept that. The answers that the priest may or may not be able to provide because he is so hurt mm-hmm. by the world and by himself and so that kind of brings us to a really tragic end for that character in episode five which was pretty unexpected i think for the most part a little context there he is bitten by the vampire and brought back to life and so riley is now a vampire like the priest mm-hmm. one of the first that adds a whole nother layer to his struggle because now he has not only been told of scripture and everything that is in there but he is now living it he is now part of the miracle he is a miracle and i still don't know really what to make of that him refusing to accept death i'd be really curious to hear what you guys have to say about his possible mindset going into his what is ultimately a suicide he brings his friend Aaron out into the boat and allows the sun to rise and burn him to death Mm -hmm. because I still don't ultimately think I have a conclusion on why he did that. I think that he actually, despite his atheism, has a pretty strong moral compass in terms of I think after that happened to him and he witnessed this being, whether it be a demon or vampire, and Father Pruitt, I think that he was totally aware that this this was wrong. And I don't view it necessarily as like a suicide. Like, I'm just done with this, mm-hmm. peace out. I think it was meaningful, and I think he was choosing the path of love. Because if you're to stay in that state, eventually you're going to kill someone. As eventually, a Yeah. And so I think self-sacrifice in that example was in a place of love, not like selfish suicide. You know what I mean? Yeah, I like that. Because he didn't have that corrupted framework that everyone else is working Mm -hmm. with, that small circle who were privy to the knowledge of the quote-unquote vampire Mm -hmm. angel. He was able to look at this as a hideous, monstrous thing. And so, yeah, I like that angle. And I think you're entirely right. And he said he was trying to save Aaron by making her understand that this is what's happening on the island and she mm-hmm. she wanted to save her from that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I like that interpretation a lot. I like what you said. Makes a lot of sense. When it goes back to like the whole Christ versus Antichrist being the vampire and it's interesting. him choosing self-sacrifice. Yeah, there's a lot to be said which about is really taking that inventory of the heart mm-hmm. and um, trying to evaluate for each person, you know, doing that by themselves, like I feel like if anybody on this island had at any point after the revelation of, you know, no pun intended, yeah. <laughs> of the revelation of what 
what was really going on, if they had just taken a moment to uh, examine that and interpret that, uh, they would have really come to the same place of this is what's happening here is not good. This is a corruption of everything, Mm -hmm. of belief, of the flesh, of reality, of goodness. But they were not able to do that. There was like a, there was a, maybe a mob mentality. And Mm -hmm. like I said, with Bev, she sort of hijacked that movement and was able to direct people in certain directions. And I think there are a lot of interesting parallels for that reason. You know, now more than ever in the modern world, Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this show. Yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to human nature too. Like people, you know, are somewhat good at learning by knowledge. People are really, really good at learning through emulation. (laughs) I mean, is that not so true? Yeah. People are so willing to give themselves over to a movement to become part of something, something greater than themselves. Good or bad. Yeah. Good or bad. There's, there's a real vulnerability there. There's a responsibility, I think, of each person to deal with that, to to kind of look inward and say, how am I being right now? Am I being reasonable, rational? Am I being kind? Mm -hmm. You know? Right, because even if you're angry with an injustice, for example, and you want to get behind a movement for justice on that specific issue, there's a lot of different ways that that can play out. Mm Because if if I'm angry about something and I want to move in the direction that I want, I can act out in violence, I can act out in anger, or I can act out in other ways. Mm -hmm. Human nature. Yeah. I mean, even from a secular framework, we think of like becoming enlightened right? Becoming closer to God in your own point of view. I mean, you, you've taught me about like spiral dynamics, right? Of achieving your more actualized self. And I feel like that's the same kind of thing. It's just some people use God as an inextricable part of that process. There are so many ways you can bring it into modern living, make it practical. I do think a lot of people that have gone before us who have been through doubt and wrestling, there's so much to learn from them. But I think that one quote comes to mind from the writer Dostoevsky, Russian writer. He said, my Hosanna is born from a furnace of doubt. And I always loved that line. That was, I think, about his personal faith. And I think there is something to be said about those who like deeply wrestle with their faith or, or deeply wrestle and question the complexities of life as this show does. And coming into a place of maybe peace, maybe acceptance, maybe, I mean, he says my Hosanna, right? That means my help. My help comes through a furnace of doubt. And what is a furnace? But something painful and something excruciating. So it is really interesting to think about that in the context of the show too. And especially with Riley. Yeah. And it wasn't even until tonight starting this podcast that I think I became hooked on the word acceptance because that feels like it kind of what it is, at least for these characters in the show, whether it's Riley or the priest, probably not Bev Keen, but most of the other characters, (laughs) they come to a point where they are like, okay, not even a resignation, but an acceptance of of these existential problems of death, of purpose, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of faith. And uh, there seems to be a piece that comes from that. Which is, you know, I'm still searching for that personally. I think most people are, mm-hmm. which totally. I think is, is part of the reason why I enjoyed the show so much. And I think Mike Flanagan has a pretty brilliant sense of story and direction because all of his shows are, or rather, he hasn't done a lot of shows, but Hill House and Midnight Mass, they're shows about those same themes, not exactly religion in the context of Midnight Mass, but of purpose and of acceptance yeah. uh, and death and stuff like that. So it's always a pleasure to watch. You know, it's why I love fiction so much in literature is because you get to watch characters struggle with it and then you can learn from it, hopefully, so you don't have to 
make the same pitfalls. God, I would hate to uh, fall into those same pitfalls and be burned alive at dusk <laughs> or dawn in the sunlight. Yeah, so this show, as you can obviously tell, is clearly philosophical, has deep elements of theology and exposition, analogy of Christianity and other kinds of religion, and is uh, honestly like a great springboard to sort of engage and bounce these ideas off of and i was really grateful because i was i was sort of debating whether to watch it or not and then gabe was like yeah you should watch it i think it'll be worth your time and i definitely think it was worth my time unlike a lot of other things we watch where i'm like well that was yeah and again midnight mass isn't as scary as the haunting series usually is no it's not there are moments of terror though like incredible episode six where the vampire angel walks into the church for the first time and it is just it is um like my hats off to the production design because that thing was jeepers creepers man yeah there's this one shot literal one shot in the beginning of episode two that is just so well done production design is on point um cinematography direction yeah shout out to his crew yeah flanagan always brings his a-game with the crew and just the 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 look and the the style and the shooting of the framing of everything is so on point it's very artistic i would like to think that if an angel crossed upon my path that i would have the wherewithal the presence of mind to be able to, to fight back. not to fight back but, <laughs> but to make a distinction or yeah, even yeah. just a person a person who comes across right. my path even if it's a trusted loved one who says here is an answer for you that you've been looking for and imagine the ability to say maybe that's not the right way to be aware of possible deception yeah I cried at the end of Hill House and Bly. I did not cry at the end of Midnight Mass, but I was still moved. But I think that was mostly due to Victoria Pedretti being an absolute queen. <laughs> she gutted me in Hill House and Bly Manor. <laughs>